You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Fifty years ago this month, ten people were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Included on that list are well-known names like Duke Ellington. Ira Gershwin, Alan J. Lerner, and Johnny Mercer. The only woman in that group was Dorothy Fields. But despite her talents for lyrics and storytelling, her journey to becoming a songwriter wasn't easy. In fact, there were some pretty big roadblocks in her way. As she was hoofing it around Tin Pan Alley in the um, 1920s trying to sell songs... Her father, very famous Lou Fields, was going behind her saying, if you hire my daughter, I will never use your music again. Hello and welcome back to Why I'll Never Make It, a podcast focused on the realities of a career in the performing arts and what we can learn from those who've gone before us. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, and this episode is presented in conjunction with Maestra Music, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and promoting female musicians. To learn more about this great organization founded by a former guest on this podcast, Georgia Stitt, you can go to their website, maestramusic.org. When it comes to artistic endeavors, no matter whether you're an actor, director, musician, or technician, each of us desire to be recognized and appreciated for our work. For Dorothy Fields, she had the recognition and esteem of her colleagues, anyone who knew her and worked with her, respected or even idolized her talents. Yet, it was that outward, universal acclaim that had escaped Dorothy Fields for most of her career. In part two of my conversation with Kristen Stoltz-Presley, we dig a little deeper into her Dorothy Fields biography, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby. We discuss what it was like for a woman writer in a man's world, how Fields transitioned from one decade to the next, from one musical genre to another, and we get into this idea of fame and success and what that meant to Dorothy Fields. One of my favorite lyricists is Johnny Mercer. He was a contemporary of Fields, born and died around the same time. And I would consider them to be very similar in how they wrote iconic songs. Yet, unless you're a musician, you may not know who Dorothy Fields or Johnny Mercer are, but you would definitely know their music. Do you think that ever bothered her that her songs were more popular than she was? Was being successful, was being known something that mattered to her? Initially, that was not something that she sought after. I mean, obviously, she loved being recognized for her work, as any artist does. You know, you like to be appreciated and to be successful. And she was very successful. However, 
at the early part of her career, she was just working. So really, who had the time to try to get your name in the papers when she was working as much as she was? Uh, I will say she had an opportunity in 1932 to have a radio program with Jimmy McHugh, who was her first collaborator. And they had, I believe it was an eight or 10 week, it was a short, short run, which was typical and and common in that era to do a quarter hour where they would play their new music. And Dorothy, who was full of charm and wit and very vivacious, was the co-host of that. Jimmy just played the piano. Dorothy often sang her own songs. uh, And that and so she loved that. That was one way of getting her name out there. But but really the work was more important to her than the fame. What changed was as she got older and some of her collaborators and her peers began to die. Um, she suddenly became not concerned with fame so much as legacy and wanting to be remembered for what she had done. And that's when she hired a publicist. It was the late 1950s. And you begin to see, as you look through the historic record, you begin to see articles, special interest types of stories um, written about, oh, Dorothy Fields was at the Elizabeth Arden Spa, that kind of thing. Or or Rex Reed, the famous columnist, wrote a lot about Dorothy Fields. And so that was part and parcel the work of a good publicist. So I don't think it was necessarily about fame. She had all of the um, accolades and and wealth that she could have ever wanted. Um, but I think the legacy became important to her the older that she was. And so in 1960, Dorothy Fields did an interview with WCBS for a TV special called Broadway, I Love You. It was an educational public affairs series that examined the careers and contributions of certain creative artists and individuals engaged in the American art form, musical theater. In this special, there was a full orchestra, there were singers and dancers, but the main focus were the songs and the songwriters, like Otto Harbach and a frequent Fields collaborator, Arthur Schwartz. Here's host Jim Morsk introducing Fields and chronicling the development of the American musical theater in the 1920s. Well, there were many uh, different types of reviews in the 1920s, and one of the most popular of all was Lou Leslie's Blackbirds of 1928, with a score written by Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Fields. And Dorothy Fields is one of the, the very few women to have reached success in the field generally reserved for men. So let's talk to Dorothy Fields about that. Now, this interview and recording is about 60 years old, so the sound quality isn't perfect. But one of the first things they talk about is how Dorothy came from a family of performers and writers, despite her father's objections. Pop had a very dim view about his kids going in the theater. And uh, so only three out of four of us landed in the theater. Joseph Fields, who is well-known playwright, and Herbert Fields, who worked with me, um, collaborated with me before he died, and many years before we worked together. Dorothy's father had very specific ideas for what he thought his four children should be when they grew up. They had two boys and two girls. The oldest was a girl, and then they had two boys, and then Dorothy, bookend girls. They wanted the boys to be doctors and lawyers, and the girls would marry doctors or lawyers. And out of the four children that they had, three became writers. And not just writers, but really successful writers. Joseph wrote the play My Sister Eileen, which was the basis for Wonderful Town. Um, Herbert and Dorothy, well, Herbert wrote a number of librettos with um, Rogers and Hart. And then would, he wrote librettos with Dorothy for Cole Porter. Very, very successful. These are not just, you know, oh, I, my dad's rich, so I live off his money and write in my basement or my attic. No, th- these are successful 
uh, really, really talented riders. So who was this man, Lou Fields? How and why did he want to keep his children out of entertainment? So Lou Fields was an immigrant, um, came from Poland with his family to the to the Lower East Side, as so many did, um, came through Ellis Island, worked his way up. I mean, truly the American dream. This guy worked his way up, was a vaudeville performer, and then was the best of the best in terms of producers and entertainers in his own right. And there's so many incredible things that he accomplished. And I try to touch on that in the beginning of the book, just because to me, it's so important that people understand who Lou Fields was. I mean, I think he's another name that we really don't know that much about. Um, And yet he is a massive figure in the American popular theater. Um, And so that was her father. But as an immigrant, it was so important to him that his children do better than he did. And so, you know, there was particularly at that time, it's gotten much better with celebrity culture and all of that. But 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 there was a, a big span of theater history when actors were not held in the highest regard, right? And it, it was not an illustrious, glamorous thing to be an actor at that point. And he wanted his children to be well-respected. He wanted his sons to be doctors and lawyers, and he wanted his daughters to marry doctors and lawyers. And so the notion that he had this daughter who was just absolutely um, consumed with ambition and a drive to not only... To not only have a job, but to have a job in the industry that he really wanted to propel her out of, that was um, appalling to him uh, and to her mother as well. So he fought at every turn, but eventually she was just too good at it. Um, And so, so it would be easy to say that, oh, well, her father was Lou Fields. He certainly you know, he just installed her in whatever sort of position she wanted to be in. And that's absolutely not true. In fact, as she was hoofing it around Tin Pan Alley in the um, 1920s trying to sell songs, her father, very famous Lou Fields, was going behind her saying, if you hire my daughter, I will never use your music again. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so she was really fighting against him. And in fact, she wanted to be an actor initially. And she got accepted into a summer stock company in Terrytown, New Jersey. But she never got the letter of acceptance. Her mother intercepted it, and she never knew she was accepted into the summer stock company. So there went her acting career. Um, so she tried something else. She decided she would be a lyricist, and turns out she could do that too. Wow. Well, it, yeah, it's so interesting. The the people that I talk to and bring on the podcast, so often their their parents, they, you know, they, they may have concern. You know, will they make a living as an actor because that's so hard or in the arts? But I, I've never spoken with one that had such a, a visceral parental no to being in the arts like that. It's amazing then that she kept going with it. She must have, she had that persistence then to keep doing it. Oh my gosh. I mean, when you think about it, again, it's easy to think, oh, well, she's just a kid whose dad was rich and famous and she could do whatever she want. But in fact, he had the full force of everybody that he knew. All of his contacts, instead of working for her, were working against her. And it was just pure skill and ambition that she was able to accomplish what she did. Now, when she, in 1927, December of 1927, she started writing music for the Cotton Club with Jimmy McHugh. And her father was there at that opening night. I believe it was December 4th, 1927. And in fact, it was the first night that Duke Ellington was the band leader at the Cotton Club. Mm. So yeah, so that's a pretty, pretty cool thing. A pretty cool connection. Was it at this time that her father was starting to, I I guess, 
Not Acqui- yet. Okay. Okay. Not, not, not yet. yet. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I was just about to ask, when did he finally acquiesce and be like, okay, you're good at this. I'm- well, within about a year, she was making the modern equivalent of a million dollars a year. So I think at that point he was like, okay, you can write music. It's fine. <laughs> I don't care if you write those lyrics. But at that point for her first, you know, really her professional debut as a lyricist for the Cotton Club shows, you know, they had this big kerfuffle where this actress whom Dorothy would never name, but Jimmy McHugh did. And, and, and Dorothy would always say, I don't know if she's still alive. I don't want her to come after me. And Jimmy McHugh in his biography did name her. However, there's some difference of opinion as to whether or not he was telling the truth on who this performer was. So I'm not going to call her name either, but she coming out as, you know, singing the fields and McHugh song that had been written for her sang this horribly bawdy, nasty, awful, terrible lyric that, uh, I mean, Dorothy is like 23 years old and she's sitting there with her mother and her father and her brother and Walter Winchell is there and she is feeling the world close in on her. And her father looks at her and says, where did you learn those words? And she said, I didn't write those words. Uh, and so at that night, that opening night at the Cotton Club, Lou said, would you please get out of show business now? And she did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, almost 50 years later, she was still at it. So she never gave up. And like I said, once she, she, she was hit with success very quickly. The first big hit song for Fields and composer Jimmy McHugh appeared in Blackbirds of 1928, a musical review with an all-black cast. The song, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby, was originally written for another review. Here's Fields talking about how that song finally landed in Blackbirds. Well, it was thrown out of one ship. It was thrown out of Delmar's Rebels. Uh, We were asked to write a song about a poor little girl and a poor little boy, and they were sitting on the cellar steps, and the poor little girl was Patsy Kelly, and the poor little boy was Bert Law. And so we thought a good idea for this song would be, I can't give you anything but love, baby. But after they had sung one verse and one chorus, the curtains parted, and showgirls came down dressed (laughs) as diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and rubies, and it was just so awful, and Mr. Delmar said, out. So we had it in that empty trunk of ours. I had never done uh-huh. a show. The trunk was very bare. We put that at the bottom, and then when Lou Leslie asked us to do Blackbirds, we took it out. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I've been yours, baby. Dream a while, scheme a while. You're sure to find happiness. And I guess all the things you've always longed for. That singer and dancer John Bubbles performing that song. Though she found early success with Jimmy McHugh, Dorothy Fields actually worked with many other writers and composers throughout her career. Well, I've worked with 11 composers. One of my favorite composers, Arthur Schwartz, is here tonight. I've worked with Jimmy McHugh, Jerome Kern, Sigmund Romberg... Fritz Kreisler, Harold Arlen, Harry Warren, Morton Gould, Albert Haig. See, I can't get along with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) I think you wear them out probably with your writing, don't you? I have to keep changing all the time. They can't stand me getting getting them up so early in the morning. That was the one issue that her collaborators would often have with her because she was like a machine. She was very disciplined. She got up first thing in the morning and wrote. She would typically write from about... 
eight until lunchtime and she would take a break and watch a soap opera and eat lunch. <laughs> and then she would work again for a couple of hours in the afternoon. Um, so she was very disciplined. She wrote on yellow legal pads with a, a blue pencil. She said, I would work until the, the wastebasket was full of trash. Like she would write and then crumple up papers and throw them away and, and keep what was good and throw away what wasn't. Uh, and then she was done for the day. And in fact, her son, David, told me that he never saw his mom work. He would go to school and come home. And by the time he got home, she was done working and was his mom. That was, you know, she was off the Hmm. clock as a worker. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of theater artists that I know. How about (laughs) you? So that became tricky for her all male. She always wrote with male collaborators. And they didn't work that way, right? They weren't, she was concerned, obviously, about not only am I a writer, but I also now have a husband and and children that I need to care for. So she structured her day. And then she did this even early on before she had a family. But but certainly after that, that was how her day was structured. Her family was her priority. And it it became a rub, particularly with Cy Coleman, who was very much a bachelor when they were working together. And certainly the idea of uh, working at 8 a.m. and until 3 p.m. taking a break to watch all my children or whatever (laughs) was not the way Cy Coleman worked. (laughs) And so that was, there was a little bit of a rub there with, with Coleman in particular that she worked that way, but, but that's always how she worked. Always, always, always how she worked. Apart from her brother, of course, she wrote with so many iconic legends of songwriting, you know, from Porter to Kern and a, a slew of others. And was it her father's connections in any way that helped that? Or did she really, from day one, have to kind of set her own path and find these connections and collaborators? Well, here's a really interesting thing. Um, so her father is really credited with starting the careers of Rogers and Hart, professionally speaking. So the story is told of, uh, I believe, uh, Richard Rogers was 17 at the time and Dorothy was 15. Fields' family was summering in Far Rockaway as they always summered somewhere. In fact, Dorothy was born as they summered in Allenhurst, New Jersey, but they they summered at different places around New York City. They had to be close enough to the city so that Lou had to go in either to star in a show or to take care of a show that he was producing. He could get there quickly, but yet Rose and the four children could still enjoy the the vacation. I believe Richard Rogers was a student at Columbia at this time, and he had written songs for amateur theatricals, which were very popular in New York at the time. And he, uh, a friend of his, was renting the house next door to the Fields' house on Far Rockaway, and his name was Phil Levitt. And so Phil Levitt arranged for his buddy Richard Rogers to come to the Fields' house to play a song for Lou. And Sure enough, he did. Richard Rogers wrote in his autobiography that Dorothy Fields had the prettiest brown eyes he'd ever seen. And that as he played for Lou, he was really trying more to impress Dorothy than to impress Lou. <laughs> but um, but the, the, the fact remained that Lou loved what he wrote and put it immediately into one of his shows and really launched Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart to superstardom. But it also launched a flirtation, but more a friendship between Rogers uh, and Fields. And they would maintain that throughout their lives. But yet they never did a show together. Well, Richard Rogers produced shows that Dorothy wrote. He produced Anna Get Your Gun, 
But yeah, they never wrote a show together. No, isn't that interesting? Because they were very close, particularly early on. They performed in shows as kids. Those, Like I said, those amateur theatricals, which I really was unfamiliar with until I was doing the research for this book, but they were a big deal. They would be performed at places like the Plaza Hotel or the Waldorf, um, and they were just Kids, usually early 20s or late teens, would get together to put on a show. And Richard was already involved in them and got Dorothy and Herbert both involved in it. So they performed together then. But that was just, you know, that was just kids having fun. Um, But they never professionally, they never wrote a show together. So all of that to say... They were running and she was running in the artistic circles. Uh, in fact, one of those amateur musicals, Oscar Hammerstein wrote a lyric for. He was not coupled up with Rogers at that point. He Rogers was writing with heart. But Oscar Hammerstein, who was a couple years older and was a student also at Columbia, then Richard Rogers wrote a lyric. You know, it was this whole vivacious, wonderful, young, spirited. I mean, it just had to be an incredible time to be in New York. And she rubbed elbows from a very early age with, you know, George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin and, and all of those, that whole crowd. They were very close. And was the fact that she was a woman, did that ever come into play with the people that she worked with? I mean, I mean, certainly like her father, her father wanted her to marry someone who, who had a good career. Right. And certainly societally, that was more the, the role for women to be homemakers and housewives. Absolutely. Did that play a part in any of the collaborations or the work that she did? You know, she would say no. She would say that everybody, there was no difference in the way that she was treated. She never felt um, discriminated against. She always felt like she was just one of the club. And obviously other people experience things very differently, but her experience was that she was beloved Dorothy. She was apparently just witty and and vivacious and so good to her friends and, and, and just a force to be reckoned with and obviously incredibly talented. Um, She had zero interest in the life that her parents wanted for her. Uh, She wanted nothing to do with marrying and settling down like her sister had done. Now she, she did marry and she had two children, but she did it later in life. She was, let's see, her son, David was born in 1940. So Dorothy would have been 36 which is, you know, I was 35 when I had my first child, but that was in 2012, you know, she had her first child at 36 in 1940. So she was definitely um, bucking the norms. She, she wanted to have her career. And then when her career was rolling, she had her family. So she had it both ways on her terms. You mentioned that she only worked with male writers as far as collaborating. Did she ever seek out work with women? Well, it's interesting. So Mary Rogers was composing. She probably had done, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but she probably had done Once Upon a Mattress at this time. So she was probably early 20s. And Dorothy was without a collaborator. This was pre-Cy Coleman. It was late, late 50s. So she had just done Redhead with Albert Haig, ran into Mary Rogers and said, what do you think about writing a song together? Mary was a composer. Dorothy was a lyricist. Seems like a great combination, right? And Mary said in a really, really interesting interview that she, of course, wanted to write a song with Dorothy Fields. I mean, she was Dorothy Fields for Pete's sake. But she said, I remember telling her no, because I felt like I needed a ma- I needed to work with a man. Like you felt like you needed that man there to give you um, validity almost. Hmm. Maybe other women felt that same way, but that definitely is an interesting comment on on gender studies there that Mary said, I would love to have worked with her. It would have been great for my career. 
but yet I thought I can't work with, she's another woman. We need a man almost as a chaperone, you know, kind of interesting, but um, never worked professionally with a woman. Uh, she worked with a woman producer, but never a woman composer. I assume Dorothy did not, did not share the same sentiment as Mary. She never said anything if she did. And like, yeah, she approached Mary about working with her. So presumably not. She never said anything to that end that I've found. Would Dorothy Fields be considered a feminist of her time? Would she be considered someone who who pushed either that envelope or at least pushed for more female representation? She Okay, so there's another another great interview in which Dorothy says, do I think that more women should be writing? Absolutely, I do. But at the same time, did she see herself as carrying some kind of a mantle to blaze this trail for other women writers? She really didn't. Uh, it's not that she didn't want to help women writers, but she did not see herself as a trailblazer in the way maybe another Dorothy, Dorothy Parker, might have, right? Where she was intentionally trying to shatter norms. Dorothy Fields was not doing that. Dorothy Fields was uh, a very, very conventional woman and just had a tremendous skill and talent. We talked about that process of her writing and a lot of research went into the characters, the stories that she would create. So it wasn't just thinking of an idea and then just writing it down. There was a lot of research backstory that she went into. And one in particular that you mentioned in the book was up in Central Park. And that actually came to her from a producer called Michael Todd. Yeah. So she and Herbert were looking for their next thing, like like any theater artist now, always looking for what's the next show, what's the next show. And so in order to find a show, they went to the archive of the New York Times and they started started looking for interesting stories to tell. And they found this story about the Boss Tweed scandal in Tammany Hall in New York in, I believe, the late 1880s. And they had this concept of setting it in Central Park, like a a Courier and Ives painting, which was very, very popular at the time. And so um, they wanted something that would fit the Courier and Ives look. And so they needed a story from that period in American history. And they found the Boss Tweed scandal. And up in Central Park, Park was born. So yeah, I mean, she did a tremendous amount of research. It's fascinating, though, when you look at how quickly they wrote shows back then. Now we know how long it takes to get a show from concept or or idea to getting it on stage, and it can take a decade, you know? Right. Whereas back then, they would start a show at the beginning of the year, and it would be on Broadway by the end of the year. Absolutely. I mean, that was easy. Easy to put up a show in six to nine months. No big deal. No problem. So it was a completely different way of working back then. And shows were a lot less expensive to produce. We, they also had a ton more, a lot more. I do some, I talk about this some in the book as well. There there were a significantly more openings. Like we're talking 235 openings a year on Broadway. Oh, as opposed wow. to now we have maybe, I mean, we have 40 shows running at a time, maybe 15 openings on Broadway in a year. So very, very different um, in the way that they worked. Very, very, very different. Now, most artists, of course, deal with droughts of of unemployment, even lack of inspiration for another project. How did she deal with those downtimes? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, You know, there really was not ever a long dip in her creative output. So she went, she worked with McHugh and it was just, I think at one point, 
they had five shows on Broadway at one at one time in the late 1920s. I mean, it was just now these are not book musicals as we know them today. They were mostly reviews, which was, you know, the the standard of that day. But nevertheless, I mean, just how did they write that much and and, and that high quality? And it's incredible. Um generally speaking, and, and then she went to Hollywood and she started working with Jerome Kern pretty early after she got there. Kern really just wrote maybe one, one film a year, sometimes two, but mostly just one. Dorothy wanted to write more. And so she would work with other composers. In addition to, she wouldn't slam the door in somebody's face and say, well, if you're not going to write more, I'm not going to write with you. But she would work in addition to. So that's how she collaborated with 18 different so people. So she really was a hustler. She she went out there and was constantly grinding it out, oh, finding absolutely. more people to work with. Oh, and, and, you know, again, put that in the context of 1927. The 1920s in the United States was called the Roaring Twenties for a reason, because of the exuberant, freewheeling, popular culture of the decade. The Roaring Twenties was a time when many people were defying prohibition, they were indulging in new styles of dance and dressings, and the jazz age, the music of that time, was a big part of the fashion and culture. And so as the musical tastes and wants of audiences changed, so did the songwriting. As I mentioned, that 1960 interview with Dorothy Fields also featured one of her collaborators, Arthur Schwartz. Here he is talking about another musical transition as the country is in the grips of a Great Depression and how that was shaping music in the 1930s. Well, you remember she spoke of, uh, I can't give you anything but love, and the curtains parted, and a whole bunch of showgirls with sapphires? Yes. Well, we felt that the audiences were getting tired of those showgirls, as some wit put it, uh, why he said, why is it that all pretty girls look alike? And after a while in these Ziegfeld shows and George White shows, they started to look alike. So we had the idea that if satire and wit were put into these shows and got, you got rid of the spangles and had good tunes if you could find them and good lyrics, that there might be quite an audience for that. Then in the late 1950s, she, like I said, several of her collaborators died. Herbert died very suddenly uh, and was that was a devastating blow to her. And she began to wonder, as all of those greats did, um, Irving Berlin, the chief of them, Cole Porter as well, struggling with, well, wait a minute, music is changing. Rock and roll is coming out in terms of popular music. We're hearing rock and roll as opposed to, you know, Broadway setting the tone for the hit parade. It's now... Elvis Presley setting that tone. And they began to wonder when I wait, is is this that we've been selling for all these years? Does this no longer, do people no longer want to buy this? And, you know, Irving Berlin kind of closeted himself up and became a hermit in reaction to that, but not Dorothy. Dorothy continued to hustle uh, and trying to find new collaborators. And in fact, that's how she connected with Cy Coleman was uh, they were at a, at a dinner party. Dorothy hosted it in her home for songwriters. And Cy came over to her. He was in his mid-20s. She was in her mid-50s, probably late 50s by that point. And he said, would you like to write a song? And she said, are you I thought you'd never ask me. Of course I want to write a song. <laughs> so she was ready to go, man. There was no, there was no thought of I'm done. I've, I've had my success. I've written all I can write. No, 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 no. She was 
always ready for the next thing, even if that meant writing in a style she'd never written in before. I mean, it's just incredible what she was able to accomplish. But there is a slowdown that was intentional when she had her children. Her children were born in 1940 and 1944. So she was writing, but she, but she slowed down to, you know, maybe one Cole Porter show a year. She would write the libretto with Herbert. At that point, we see she really stops writing lyrics for Broadway. And the lyrics that she's writing are for film. But those are the kinds of things, like I said, where she can write those on her own and then they send them off to the filmmakers. And she's at home in New York with her kids the whole time. That's when she started writing librettos. Um, She could collaborate with her brother, Herbert. She stayed in New York. That's where her kids were. Uh, and so you see that slowdown, but it but it was at her it was her choice to to do that so that she could be there for her kids. Did she find that adjustment going from lyrics to dialogue difficult? She loved it. She called it a dream come true. Heaven, heaven, writing because, like I said, she was a storyteller at her core. So to be able to tell actual stories and to have a full form musical to tell it in, and not just you know two and a half minutes, uh, that that was she, her word was heaven. It was heavenly. She absolutely loved it. That she could do it with her brother, Herbert, who was so dear to her, was icing on the cake. And one of those collaborations that they worked on together was Redhead. Yeah. So think about that. You know, she had worked on something like Up in Central Park, which was created to look like a Courier and Ives painting. And then all of a sudden she's writing Redhead, which she had been working on for a long time, like from the early 50s. And it didn't make it to Broadway until um, the late 50s. And it was because it just kept going through different iterations and different producers and different composers. And uh, and finally, even when they brought in Bob Fosse, it was significantly changed. Um, but as you can imagine, Courier and Ives uh, and Bob Fosse are very different styles, <laughs> right? Um, but it was not only Fosse's directorial debut, but it was also um, Gwen Verdon, like a breakout role for her. She had been on Broadway before, but in supporting roles. And this was a breakout role for Gwen Verdon. So uh, Dorothy was right there at the at the cusp of what would be, you know, kind of a, a guiding light for the next generation of Broadway with Fosse and Verdon and their collaboration. And Richard Kiley was in that before he became Man of La Mancha. Yeah, so. that's right. Richard Kiley. That's exactly right. There was definitely a generation gap, but it was one that she was very emphatic about bridging so that she could continue to work for as long as she could continue to work. And did she ever take a a chance on writing something all by herself? Because she collaborated with a lot of people, but did she ever have a solo work of her own? She did not. And in fact, after Herbert died, she never wrote another libretto. She went back to writing lyrics. Her her next two shows uh, were Sweet Charity, which was Neil Simon on libretto and Cy Coleman for music. And then Seesaw, which was Cy Coleman on music. And Michael Stewart wrote the book for that. So she never wrote another book without Herbert. That was That was something that was too painful for her to do, that process without him. She really accomplished so much over her 48 years in the business, and, you know, including the, the Academy Award for The Way You Look Tonight, that, that Best Musical Tony Award for Redhead. Would you say that she ever felt like that she made it, that she, that she met her own definition of success? I think so. I think so. I can't think of a time, you know, I think that she was at the top of her game from the beginning of her career to the end of it. I mean, you don't get more top of your game than coming home from a rehearsal for a national tour of a show that you wrote uh, and getting a, getting a message on your machine that you have been nominated for a Tony Award for that show 
and then dying that night. I mean, you can't you can't have it any better than that in terms of going out on top. Um, so I think that she was very uh, she was always able to provide for herself anything that she wanted. She was always able to, you know, there may have been a dry period where she was looking for the collaborator after Albert Haig until she met Cy Coleman, but she pushed through and she found that next collaborator. And that collaboration was one of the most successful of her careers. And it was the last. So I think that she probably was very, very pleased with what she was able to do. I think it's also fair to say that the world of musical theater has also been quite pleased with what she was able to accomplish in the works that she presented to audiences from the 1920s all the way through to the 1970s and beyond. And her persistence through those decades is a lesson for all of us. From pushing past her father's objections to dealing with her brothers and other collaborators passing away as she continued to write songs. Dorothy Fields is a true testament to that saying, work hard in silence and let success make the noise. Kristen and I continue our conversation about Fields in this week's Final Five bonus episode, which is a little different from the previous Final Fives I've done this season and before. Instead of Kristen answering the five questions about herself, I've asked her to take on the role of Dorothy Fields and answer the questions from her perspective. It's a unique and insightful Final Five episode. For access to that members-only episode, as well as all of the bonus content, go to join.whyillnevermakeit.com. For as little as $3 a month, you can get these extra episodes and deeper dives into the guests and conversations that we have each week. Plus, I'll be honest, it would be a great help in supporting this podcast financially. As an actor and performer, I've been out of work for a year and have sunk most of my time and energy into this podcast. I love doing these interviews and and sharing these stories. So with the extra time I've had on my hands, I started creating extra episodes and extra content for you back in October of last year. Those bonus episodes keep being recorded and released on Supercast, which is a platform similar to Patreon, but is more specifically geared toward podcasts. However, so far, no one has become a member at any of the pricing tiers available. Now, I know, not everyone has money to give. This pandemic hit all of us financially, mentally, emotionally, and we're just trying to get through day after day, week after week. So that's why I also started the newsletter, which is a free way to keep in touch with podcast happenings and upcoming guests. But since the beginning of the season... Only one person has added their name to the email list. Now, I don't tell you all this to complain or or be a sob story. I'm just letting you know how much I care about this podcast and how much I care about you as a listener. I truly want this to be a community, one where we can take this journey together as artists, as creatives. I want us to learn and grow from each other because goodness knows I don't know everything. But the one thing I do know, as Booker T. Washington said, if you want to lift yourself up, lift up someone else. And that's what I try to do each and every week through these conversations. So I certainly hope they are lifting you up. And when you're ready and able, 
I simply ask that you think about lifting me up as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and being a part of our conversation. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.